if anybody's listening to this podcast and they've been, and at some point in their adult life, uh, they've said to themselves, is there ever going to be a moment where the Twin Cities metro area actually builds a modern transit service uh, system with multi-modes and frequency that respects all users? Is that ever going to happen? Now, now is the time that it could happen. Now is the time that I'm hoping that people who are listening to this will call their state legislators. If you grew up in a suburb and your parents are still there, you got to call them. You got to have them call your legislator, their legislators. If you have friends around the metro area, particularly in suburbs, they got to call their legislators right now and tell them to support the House version of the bill. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 Peter, why did you call why did you call me for advice about what to do for your flat tire that you got? No, no, no. Yeah, I was definitely I was I was I was not calling for advice on what to do. It sounded like you wanted advice. No, I know. Okay, so so here's the thing. So um I have owned a car for most of my adult life. I put the spare on the car because I have the spare to replace the flat. But we own a Chevy Bolt. and a Chevy Bolt, they save the weight by not having a spare in a Chevy Bolt. This is probably not a commercial for a Chevy Bolt acknowledging this. So I'm thinking, well, what do I do? So I wasn't expecting you to have the answer so much as I was thinking out loud. So apologies for okay. that. It's fine. I I actually was a little flattered that you thought I was the man, a manly kind of car guy who would be <laughs> able to help you with your car trouble. So I was a little bit flattered, but I don't have a car, so I couldn't offer any advice. Peter Peter managed to get here for the podcast conversation despite getting a flat tire. Thank you for doing that. Uh, this is Peter Wag- Waginius. Uh, who can I call you a lobbyist? For the I'm Sierra a lobbyist. Club. I'm registered, so I can't deny it. Okay, lobbyist for the Sierra Club, and I'm going to call this the bus funding episode. Yeah, please. Because the, we've got a trifecta at the legislature. DFL is in control of uh, House, Senate, Governor, which means just a world of possibility. And uh, we're we're going to be talking about transportation funding. That's what we're talking about. Amen. Start with the headlines. I've heard about the 75 cent delivery surcharge passed yep. on the house side. I've mm-hmm. heard about the 0.75 cent Metro seven County sales tax to fund transit. Are there any other headlines out of what was just passed out of the house that I'm uh, missing? There's more detail, but those are the, those are the fundamentals. There's, there's three sources of funding for funding roads um, you mentioned one of them, motor vehicle sales tax is another one, tab fees is another one, and that there's one big funding source to pay for transit in the metro area, which is a sales tax only in the metro area. And we can talk about, you know, why we do it that way in a second. But um, one of the most important things to understand about this this bill, by both historic standards and by national standards, um, the House bill is awesome, uh, not just because of what's in it. 
for transit, for biking, for walking, but because of what's not in it in terms of a lack of proportionality. Uh, your typical uh, state transportation bill is going to be a gajillion dollars for a massive expansion of roads. And oh, by the way, here's a couple of shekels for that, that transit thing that you people in the metro area do. This bill, the Frank Hornstein-Scott-Dibble bill, but let's particularly talk about the House bill. The Frank Hornstein bill in the House is actually roughly half and half in terms of total dollars. That is not what most states do. It's not what Minnesota has historically done. So this is the House bill is a fantastic bill for multiple reasons. And let's get into defining the problem with sure. uh, transportation funding, transit funding, what problem are we trying to solve? Uh, what is possible to do with the money that's in the House the House version of the bill? Yeah. So uh, our coalition, and our coalition has never been bigger, it's uh, the Transportation Forward Coalition, which includes Move Minnesota, includes Sierra Club, MIN350, it includes Isaiah this year. They're awesome. They put boots in the ground. And we have uh, help from the 100% campaign because their bill already passed. So they have this huge coalition. And what we developed over time, we basically looked at all of the identified needs. And it's not just metro area transit, it's greater Minnesota transit too. That's funded differently. But we asked ourselves, what if we were building out the arterial BRT network? What if we were building out the highway BRT network? And those are different. The arterial BRT network is mostly in the core cities and the first ring suburbs. The highway BRT network goes out to second, third, fourth ring suburbs. What if we were building all of those out and providing, you know, real frequency in the five to 10 minute sort of range, the kind of frequency we all dream of, of, of having? And you put that together with significant investments. We asked for a one cent metro-wide sales tax with a 10% set aside for bike and ped um, in the metro area. And again, separate funding sources for the same amenities in, in greater Minnesota. And that's how we, we, we came up with it. We identified all those needs, and what would that take? It would take a one-cent metro-wide sales tax. Now, the House bill isn't one cent. I didn't think we were going to get everything we, we asked for. But at a three-quarter cent, we can operate everything I just described. Um, we'll still need to get the full need. We'll still need to use the bonding bill to have capital investments you know, over the next you know, you know, 10 years. But that will cover the operating and that's how we get frequency. So this bill is a very, very big deal. So you talk about, I read something you wrote about this. You talk about bus neglect and the fact that uh, Governor Dayton 10 years ago had a proposal to do this. And basically this is doing what didn't pass 10 years ago, but we need yeah. to catch up. We need to catch up to what was proposed then and we, what we haven't been doing for 10 years. We need to catch up with that. Can you talk about that? I'd love to talk about that. Can we do the slides here? We can't. You are now the host, Peter. You, we can do your slides. Awesome. Because I love it when people ask me about the history because the history matters because we're, we're dealing with decisions made and decisions not made. If you want to view Peter's slides, go to youtube.com slash wedge live if you're listening and you'd like to view them. I love your lobbyist backdrop with the faces of various legislators on those maps. I'm telling you, those maps where they put the face right on the map, um, it's gold. Do you get that at the lobbyist store? Where do they sell these maps? Uh, no, actually, you can get, because of COVID, you can actually now get them for free. You go yeah. to the, uh, the GIS office on the sixth floor of the uh, state office building, 
and um, they used to charge you. And now, I don't know what that has to do with COVID, actually. I think it's because they don't want to mail them to people or something. That's what the guy said to me. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I got them. I got to send it over here and house over here. So it's nice. Free maps. Free maps. All right. Can you see that now? I can, yes. Okay, awesome. So uh, Sierra Club isn't just on transportation, but we are highly focused on on climate. And the two biggest sectors of climate pollution uh, in Minnesota are energy and transportation. Transportation is number one. And unlike energy, unlike excuse me, unlike electricity, which is moving in the right direction, transportation is not moving in the right direction. Transportation is the number one source, and electrification is going to do is going to have a lot of benefits. Uh, I, I throw threw in a picture of my own electric car here, but here's the problem: too many people think electric cars will solve all problems, and it's just not true. Literally, there is no data to support the idea that we can address uh, climate emissions uh, from the transportation sector with electrification alone. You can't do it. Um, um, we have to also reduce vehicle miles traveled. Uh, I have a stat, it's a couple years old, but the, the story is still relevant. In the 25 years preceding 2019, there was a 41% in increase in population in the United States, and there was a 100% 106% increase in vehicle miles traveled. Well, during that time, that same 25 years, ending in 2019, there were lots of ways that individual cars became less polluting, and there's no cumulative benefit of that. And the reason is because it was all obliterated by the increase in VMT. VMT is the thing that uh, sneaks up on you and eats your lunch, or in this case, destroys the planet, if you're not uh, paying attention to it. So there's no way to do this with electrification alone. We have to reduce VMT. Can we pause a moment and talk about like why why did VMT just go up so much? Is it I'm I'm imagining there's a land use part of that. Uh, what's driving that if we can explain that? Sure. What's driving that is is a series of factors. Um, we spend a lot of money making it really easy for people to drive. Um, and like Jeanette Sadek Khan says in her book, uh, you get what you build for. If you build for a maximum amount of tra traffic, you will get a maximum amount of traffic. But to your question, it's not just transportation policies, which have highly valued driving and highly subsidized driving. It is also land use policies that makes people's destinations further and further away. Um, land use policies, uh, actually the biggest climate benefit of the change that we're, we're going to be able to make uh, from passing the House version of the transportation bill is both the transportation impact, but also that it will liberate us to change land use policies. Those two things together can be absolutely transformative because it's definitely both. It's definitely subsidizing one form of transit, uh, one form of transportation, not others, as well as land use policies. I, I like to tell people that you know, you'd think, you might think, based on how much people in America talk about freedom and choice, you might think that would have Im impacted our transportation and land use policies. It hasn't at all. Our transportation and land use policies are not built around choice. They're not built around freedom. They're built around conformity. Everybody should be the same. And the same thing applies to, you know, there's, it's, it's as if there's one right way to travel, which is in a single occupancy car, which you own. 
For that matter, our, both our land use and tax policies would have you believe that there's one right way to live in a single family home, which you own. Think about how many people that leaves out. That leaves out a ridiculous number of people in America. And the biggest thing we need to do is actually to just be true to our supposed values. If we actually value choice and freedom, and we actually provide people choices in how to get around, and choices in ways they can uh, live, that alone we would be way ahead uh, of where we are today. Sorry, you asked me a simple question. I gave you a long answer. That's okay. This is a slideshow, Peter. We can uh, we can drone on and on. <laughs> okay. So within the state of Minnesota, it's important to say that metro areas uh, are the problem when it comes to VMT. Metro areas are the problem. But here's the good news. Metro areas are also the solution. If the legislature is willing to fund bus rapid transit, both forms, arterial and highway, we can build it quickly and we can fund it with revenue that is generated only from the metro area. We are right now on the verge of a historic victory. And the important thing is to remember the best practices. And the number one best practice that we've learned from uh, talking to our colleagues all around the country is metro areas need to pay for their own transit. It does not work to tax rural areas to pay for transit in the metro area. Um, this is why regions overwhelmingly use a sales tax. It's not because a sales tax is like the perfect form of taxation. It's that it's really easy to sculpt a sales tax to a particular geography. So I showed Seattle region. They never attempted in Washington, as far as I can remember, at least not for a long time, they never attempted to tax all of Washington state. They didn't even tax all of Sonomish, King, and Pierce counties. They drew a map which was good policy and good politics. And that's what we need to do here. The regions that say, oh, we're going to wait for, uh, for rural areas to pay for metro transit, they never stop waiting. Now, this brings up a, a question, an equity question, a leg legitimate equity question about regional tax equity. You'll, you, used, you used to hear legislators say, well, wait a minute, Peter. Um, we pay for roads from a statewide resource. Why should the metro area have to pay for their own transit? Isn't that inequitable? And, you know, that's a fair point. But we got to put this in a context. The most inequitable outcome possible is the status quo. The most inequitable outcome is requiring every adult to pay nine to $10,000 a year to own and operate a vehicle. But what about everybody too young, too old, economically distressed, or physically challenged for whom owning a car is not a possibility? Even if that were a possi possibility, uh, in any other way, in a climate way, it is incredibly inequitable. It shuts out an incredible amount of people from full participation in our economy. And this is, I'm encouraging all of our advocates to keep pounding on this message. The most inequitable outcome possible is the status quo. And this is, this is not just about transportation. It goes broader than that. When you, whenever you're proposing to do something new, like the Hornstein bill, people put that bill on trial. But we need to put the status quo on trial, too. And when, once you do that, you realize the Hornstein bill is pretty awesome because it's going to allow us to change that inequitable status quo. So as I said before, we have this huge coalition now. I won't go through all the partners. Um, but this proposal is also not new. Uh, we've been advocating for this in some form for over 15 years. Governor Dayton proposed a sales tax in 2013. 
the Senate actually passed a sales tax in 2013, the last time the Democrats were in the majority, but that didn't pass the House. Governor Dayton continued to approve uh, it through the rest of his administration. Governor Walls included a smaller version when he took office. The House passed it four years ago. The House passed it again two years ago. And the governor has recommended, again, a smaller form this year. We've uh, been reassured the governor is willing to go along with, with what the House and Senate uh, produce. So the challenge is really to get the Senate to do what the House did uh, two days ago. Um, Minnesotans overwhelmingly support us. Uh, the call for climate action is so much greater than it was 10 years ago, the last time we had a trifecta. And we've polled specifically, our partners at Move Minnesota polled specifically on a sales tax in the metro area, which was supported 55%. That's also kind of an amazing thing. So the opportunity is really now. For us, 2013 is the ultimate cautionary tale. That's the last time we had a trifecta. We made serious progress on education, healthcare, most other issues, and we got nothing on transportation. Raising revenue for transit actually wasn't the problem. It was the gas tax uh, for roads that was a huge problem. And what happened is eventually Speaker Thiessen said, yeah, we'll get to transportation next session. But there was no next session. We lost the trifecta and we lost a decade. And I'm encouraging people to talk about the lost decade. If you think about the transit system we could actually build over the next 10 years, another way to describe what we're going to build over the next 10 years if we pass the House version it's the system we would already have today if we hadn't missed the opportunity to pass a great bill during the last trifecta. So that's my PowerPoint. Um, and, and I'll just end with, if, you, if you'll forgive, like a call to action. And then, and then, John, you should shoot at everything I've just said. But if anybody's listening to this podcast and, they've been, and at some point in their adult life, uh, they've said to themselves, is there ever going to be a moment where the Twin Cities metro area actually builds a modern transit service uh, system with multi-modes uh, and frequency that respects all users? Is that ever going to happen? Now. Now is the time that it could happen. Now is the time that I'm hoping that people who are listening to this will call their state legislators. If you grew up in a suburb and your parents are still there, you got to call them. You got to have them call your legislator, their legislators. If you have friends around the metro area, particularly in suburbs, they got to call their legislators right now and tell them to support the House version of the bill. So how quickly could we build out our BRT highway and arterial uh, under this funding mechanism versus, you know, not not doing it? Yeah, frankly, we could go we could go from what we're doing right now, which is opening an arterial BRT line every couple of years to opening I mean, there would be a ramp up uh which would take, you know, cuz we don't have the staff for this, but within a couple of years we would be opening several projects a year instead of one project every several years. Um arterial BRT is can be really fast to implement. Uh highway BRT takes a little bit longer. Um, but even that is not going to be as long as like Orange Line BRT. Orange Line BRT required the, uh, some huge, uh, that's the one on, on 35W. So you imagine the Lake Street Station. Uh, that takes longer to build. But most of the BRT lines will not have stations like they have at places like 35W and Lake um, or like Snelling and 94, which is one of the projects that we hope to build on the sooner end of that program. As you get further out into the suburbs, there are going to be stations on the side of the road. 
So it doesn't even require a giant you know, highway project to build the station. You can just build a station without it being connected to this, this huge uh, highway reconstruction project. So highway BRT is more complicated, but people shouldn't assume it's gonna be as complicated as it was to build Orange Line BRT. Um, it'll probably be that complicated between downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul. But for most of the region, they're going to be able to build what's called an uh, an online, excuse me, an inline station rather than an online station, which is next to the freeway rather than the middle of it. And we could build that much faster than we've been building up to now. And uh, for anyone who's unacquainted, I'm sure most listeners know what BRT is, but uh, it's bus rapid transit and you pay before you board and it's more frequent and... The stops are a little further apart, so there's less uh, starting and stopping. It's just faster. It's better. It's good. It's faster. It's better. And by the way, I have, if you want to do another podcast where we get into the differences between the three types of BRT, there's actually a third type, which is dedicated lane BRT, which is like Gold Line, the one that's under construction from downtown St. Paul to the eastern suburbs. Um, I think that's going to be a little less common, but there's going to be at least two, Gold Line and Purple Line, heading uh, north of downtown St. Paul. But the common features of all of them, um, frequency, off-board payment, uh, when it's operating on a street, things like signal preemption, so you're not sitting there waiting when there's no reason to be waiting. The driver can, uh, can extend a, a, a green light. There's all these tools we can use that, are, that already exist on Penn Avenue North, already exist on the D-Line, already exist on the A-Line and Snelling, and we could have that uh, on major corridors throughout the region. And the ridership, when these lines get built, the ridership is high, higher on these lines than other forms of bus service. So it's like people want to ride it. People, riders respond to it. It'll get more people riding the bus. Absolutely. There has been a very predictable 20% increase in ridership on A-line, C-line, and D-line, the three that are, that are already in place. Um, because we're providing people what they're looking for. Metro Transit, uh, and I, I have my share of beefs with, with uh, Met Council and how they've managed the overall system, but the office within Metro Transit that plans these corridors knows what they're doing. They've measured every aspect of a transit trip. How long are you at the intersection? How long are people paying, to, uh, paying while they're on board? They've measured all these things out in seconds, and um, they've proven their case by building these projects and increasing the ridership. Those corridors were also the most resilient to pandemic uh, uh, ridership decrease. Other routes decreased a lot more. That one never lost its ridership to the same degree and has rebounded faster because again, we're giving people what they're asking for. Some people think that the only way you can do this is by building rail and it's just not true. You listen to riders and you give them what they ask for. They're asking for frequency. They're asking for speed. You give them speed and frequency and they ride. We hear a lot about the bus driver shortage. Will, will this some of this money go to addressing that? Because that, that appears to be what's causing some of the service cuts is there just not enough drivers to ride to drive the buses. Yeah, we definitely have a have a bus shortage. And I won't pretend that I'm on top of the operational issues uh, as much as they are. I don't assume on that that funding is the, big, the biggest, most immediate problem. Uh, but 
there are things that we're going to do indirectly with this funding that I think are definitely going to make it easier for them to recruit drivers. Um, this is the amount of funding that will allow us to do the things that are needed to improve safety. Um, and when you improve ridership, ridership itself is a safety improvement. And those are the kinds of things that I think make a difference for how attractive it is to be a, a transit driver. So um, over the long term, this is definitely going to address uh, uh, that challenge. But in the near term, I, I don't assume I don't want people to assume that we're going to have all these frequencies like the day after we pass the bill. There is going to be a ramping up, uh, particularly over the first two years. But for the first time, funding is not going to be the reason that that this has been a challenge to provide people with decent frequency. I took a Metro Transit survey recently, uh, and it asked about like what are what are your priorities? What what do you want to see from transit? And one of them was like, should we prioritize? like routes in the urban core? Should we prioritize serving like the outer suburbs? And so is this one of those things where we can have, we can have it all kind of thing. And we don't, we no longer have to be worried about where we're going to prioritize. Uh, is that how we should be interpreting this? Yes. And as a matter of fact, that is maybe the most crucial question in front of us right now. If we pass the House version of this bill, which includes a three-quarter cent metro-wide sales tax, we can build both arterial BRT in the core and highway BRT outside the core, which is really important for access. It's not just important for people who live out there. It's important for people in the core to be able to get to jobs out in the suburbs. The Senate did something that was not encouraging. Um, they, in the tax committee last week, they cut the, their bill down, and this was not the fault of the author, this was not Senator Dibble's fault, they cut it down from three-quarter cent down to a half cent. That is going to involve some really painful choices if the Senate version, as it currently exists, were to, we would not be able to build everything that I've just described. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that we're quite certain would drop off the list, that would go on to the don't build list, if the funding went from three-quarter cent to a half cent, um, that's a $200 million difference. It's more than cutting by a third. It sounds like you'd just be cutting it by a third, three-quarters down to, to a half. But actually, a, a portion of that first half cent is just to eliminate Met Council's current operating deficit. So it's actually the, the Senate bill to cut it from three-quarters of a cent to a half cent is actually cutting the new funding in half. So if there's a suburban legislator who thinks, oh, well, maybe this is okay, it's their districts that are not going to end up getting served. And it's frequency system-wide that is not going to end up happening. And here's why. When they built arterial BRT on Penn Avenue North, on Chicago Avenue South, on Emerson Fremont, the C-line and the D-line, they were able to transfer operating funds from the slow previous bus to the new faster bus. When you're building, and, and that's true in general for arterial BRT lines, when you speed up the service, you're saving money and you can transfer operating dollars from a slow service to a fast service. For all those suburban routes, in many cases, there is no service. You're building something new, new capital expense, new operating expense. So we want to make sure to get the, new, the, the word out to all these suburban legislators Having that higher number is about having frequency system-wide, but it's also about making sure those 
those new projects, and by virtue of being new, they are more expensive, to suburban communities actually come online and they actually exist because by virtue of being new, they are more expensive. And to sum up what, what you said at the beginning, like quarter cent is the baseline. That's just to maintain what we have now. And right. You you don't get above baseline until you get start getting above that quarter quarter cent. That's right. But so so that's why I, that's why I think it's so important uh, for people to to not only call their legislators if they happen to live in Minneapolis like you and I do, but to call their friends and get in the suburbs and get their uh, them to call their legislators as well, because if we don't get that higher number or something in that ballpark. Metro Council is going to be forced to continue to do what they've been doing, which is to be fiscally responsible. And being fiscally responsible means they speed up the service on the lines they're already operating, but they don't provide new service to communities that don't have service. Is there a particular, you don't have to name names, but like in the Senate, I know the DFL has a one vote majority, which means you need unanimity. Is there a particular person that needs to be convinced? Like, is it just a widespread skepticism? It's not widespread, but, but and, and I don't know if it's wise for me to name particular legislators, but I will tell you this. Oftentimes on uh, bills like this at the Capitol, people immediately assume the problem is legislators from greater Minnesota. And we do have legislators, Democratic legislators, who represent St. Cloud, Moorhead, Duluth, Rochester, Mankato. Uh, and for the most part, they're not the problem. Because as we talked about a moment ago, we have deliberately made this bill really easy for greater Minnesota legislators to support. They're going to be able to have a huge in impact on climate emissions from Minnesota, and they're not going to have to tax their own constituents to do it. Because under the leadership of Chair Dibble and Chair Hornstein, um, we are asking the metro area to pay for its own transit. But no one should assume that there's any suburban legislator who doesn't need a phone call. Um, I think we have a lot of support in the suburbs, but there's enough people uh, uh, who need to, uh, to need to hear from their constituents that I would say, if you have a friend in the suburbs, they should make the call. You don't need to worry about Jen McEwen up in Duluth. You don't need to worry about Eric Putnam in St. Cloud or Liz Bolden in Rochester. Um, I think they're going to support this. Uh, but suburban legislators need to hear the urgency, not just to pass the bill, but to pass something on the scale of the House bill. I think it's very odd. I'm just going to remark on this, that uh, the two legislators who represent the Wedge neighborhood uh, chair the Transportation Committee in the House and in the Senate. That's weird. That's weird good. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I hope people appreciate that when I compare this bill to to historic bills or bills in other states where it's overwhelmingly a highway bill and there's a little money for transit, the reason that's not the case is because we have these chairs and they've held the position as lead Democrats for a long time. So people know them and they trust them. Um, and that's why we have the ability to not just pass a bill, but pass a good bill. They represent the most, uh, arguably the most transit-friendly uh, place in the entire state of Minnesota. So, That's right. And one of the That's benefits great. of their background 
which is in some ways is similar to mine. If if you if you've worked on transit projects in Minneapolis as they have as I have, you get invited to everything. I mean, when I worked at the city of Minneapolis, I got invited to meetings to plan the Gold Line from down from the eastern suburbs to downtown St. Paul because there were some uh, there were some uh, express buses in that quarter that came all the way to downtown Minneapolis because so many things come to the University of Minnesota or downtown Minneapolis. And you get a front row seat in Minneapolis to just how transformative real investments can be. Scott and Frank know that, and um, that's why we're lucky that we have that they're in the driver's seat at this particular moment in history. Can we talk about how we have traditionally funded transit? I don't follow the state legislature as closely as I should, though I am though it affects me greatly as it does everyone. How yeah. do we are we just kind of cobbling it together every year? Cuz it uh you have emphasized the importance of this funding being ongoing. Sales tax comes in every year and you can rely on it. Have we done not done that in the past? We have absolutely not done that in the past. And you use the word cobbling. Uh, I think that was in the headline of the article I wrote to the Strib about this phenomenon in 2019. Um, cobbling is exactly what we do. There is some general fund support, but believe it or not, the state legislature has never passed ongoing revenue for transit, new revenue. They've been willing to dedicate some existing revenue which doesn't take as much political heat to do that. And really crucially, back in 2008, they allowed counties to raise revenue. They didn't raise the revenue. The legislature didn't raise the revenue. They allowed counties to raise the revenue. So all the counties in the metro area have the authority to raise a half cent, uh, which they can spend on whatever they want to spend it on. Hennepin and Ramsey, to their credit, have been spending that money on um, on transit, which is the only reason we're not further and further behind. Um, the collar, the outer ring collar, collar counties like Carver and Scott have spent their money overwhelmingly on roads. And then you have counties in between like Washington, which has used some of their money to pay for Gold Line, for example, Gold Line bus rapid transit being built from downtown St. Paul to the outer ring suburbs. But you can see from that description, it's both cobbling together money it's and it's not you know consistent across the metro area so if you happen to live along say green line or blue line in hennepin county or along gold line in ramsey and washington you might get great service but since the legislature has never passed new revenue for transit system wide you get both cobbling as a chron chronological phenomenon and also a patchwork as a geographic phenomenon. If we want to get past a patchwork and past cobbling, it requires ongoing dedicated revenue, which is what they've never done before. Also, you hit a year where like Republicans take over and it's like crisis because nothing can, you can't cobble anymore. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and, and something I, 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 uh, I think it's also important to note is even if you could cobble really well and really consistently, which is the opposite of cobbling. You can't pay drivers with that. You literally, I mean, it's not even legal to use bonds to pay drivers. Drivers are an ongoing expense. They are the largest expense of the transit system, and you have to pay ongoing expenses with ongoing dollars. So, I mean, Metro Transit has been operating at a deficit for a long time, 
because of that cobbling. If we want frequency, frequency requires ongoing dedicated revenue. I, none of this is to dismiss the leadership of the counties, by the way. Um, it's worth noting that uh, most of the biggest and most impressive projects in this in this region, and I would count on that list, blue line, green line, orange line, and gold line under construction, none of those projects were advanced by the Met Council. None of them. They were all advanced by counties, cities, and legislators. And the counties, cities, and legislators said, hey, we should do better than this. Now, to Met Metro Transit's credit, there is one thing that they have advanced. There's only one mode that they've advanced, but it's a good one. It's arterial BRT. And somehow we got to get a mix of both of these in the mix. Those big projects like Blue Line, Green Line, and Orange Line, Highway BRT and LRT, but also regular route bus service. And again, bus neglect is a product of racial biases against and stereotypes about who rides the bus, but it's also a product of the unwillingness to commit to ongoing funding. So there's a cultural and a financial uh, reality that, that produces bus neglect. Uh, why not a gas tax? Is that just a political non-starter? This is probably a question that everyone knows the answer to, but uh, I don't follow the stuff. So No, I'm really glad you asked that because people ask that question all the time. Uh, I would love to pay for transit with gas tax revenues. It's literally against the constitution of the state of Minnesota because when they passed the gas tax decades ago, it is legally required that it be used for highway purposes. Now, perhaps in the future, we can expand the word highway purpose to include uh, bus rapid transit on highways, but, we're, but that's a future fight. Um, and frankly, it's never going to be the answer to bus neglect, particularly on city streets, which are not highways. Uh, in order to pay for regular route bus service, it requires something other than the gas tax. It's also politically not helpful because, uh, because the roads are not in great shape. And there's a draw on that revenue already to repair roads. Um, so uh, both because of the political reality and because of the legal reality in the state constitution, those dollars can't be used. We talked about how great, great the House bill is. Is there anything that's not in there that you, you just were disappointed that was not included? Well, like I said, our coalition originally asked for a one cent metroide sales tax, and they came out with three quarter cent. Um, I think the range of possibilities now is three quarter cent is the high mark for what we could uh, pass this year. Um, there are individual details in the bills that, are, that uh, will be negotiated in the conference committee, but I do want to highlight one other thing that is in both the House and the Senate bills that is worth defending. And I'm not the expert on this. Move Minnesota and the Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, have worked with uh, Chair Hornstein and Chair Dibble to finally bring a climate analysis to transportation investments generally. You'd think that would be something we'd be doing already in 2023, but we're not. And that is another way in which these bills are, are really great because we do elaborate analyses uh, uh, of many things, but not climate impacts. They have elaborate analyses, some of which I think are flawed about safety, for example, but they're not measuring uh, climate impacts of climate impacts of transportation investments. And it's about time we started to do that. Yeah, we have all these like very ambitious goals and sometimes not so ambitious goals about what we're going to do on climate. The city does a comprehensive plan about land use. We're going to build like dense, walkable, 
pedestrianized cities that are well suited for transit, if we're going to meet some of these goals, like you have to provide the transit, nobody's going to ride the bus because they want to do good in the world. Mostly they're going to ride the bus because it's convenient and it's there and it takes them where they need to be in a reasonable amount of time. And it's, you know, more pleasant than driving. Exactly. Well, and, and, uh, part of the beauty of these, these transportation bills is, it increases the chances that some of those plans, those aspirational plans on the shelf, will, and I don't just mean transit, the bill will fund transit. But just as an example, so I serve on this thing called the Sustainable Transportation Advisory Council, and we recommended to MnDOT that they adopt a goal to reduce vehicle miles traveled in the state 20%, uh, 20% in absolute terms, because we believe that's what the climate crisis demands. Well, they changed that from 20% to 7%. Technically, they said we're doing 20% per capita. I don't think the climate cares how many people there are. Uh, it cares how much emissions we're putting into the atmosphere. And so they changed it from 20% in absolute terms to 20% per capita, which is 7%. Um, I think the language that is in these bills is finally going to uh, call the question of, well, is uh, are these massive roadway expansion projects that MnDOT has has advocated for, including the expansion of 94 through North Minneapolis that is currently being considered, uh, or rethinking 94 between the two downtowns? Is there a climate analysis going into the decision about what comes out of those projects? Well, under this bill, maybe there finally will be. Can we talk about some of the public safety elements? Uh... What what is this bill fund in terms of public safety? I'm not the expert on that portion of the bill. The omnibus transportation bill includes public safety because, it, like, literally the Department of Public Safety, uh, yeah. because it's uh, under the jurisdiction of the transportation committees. Uh, but did you mean safety in terms of like roadway safety? I meant specifically uh, in terms of transit. It's been a, a topic okay. of conversation, like conditions on the light rail at various bus stations. I think they closed the uptown transit station uh, until they could come up with uh, like a plan to add security guards. I think there was like half a dozen stations like that that were closed temporarily until they could uh, implement a security plan. I've heard about like ambassadors on the light rail. I don't know yep. what the status of that is. Things like that. That's in the bill. And thanks to Brad Tabke, uh, a, a um, second term legislator from Shakopee, who's the vice chair of the committee, uh, as well as Steve Elkins, who was the chair of the committee last year. Um, they have put together this ambassadors program, which I think is absolutely crucial uh, to increase safety on, on transit. Normal, just regular fare checks does not need to be done by an armed officer. That's a that's uh, creating interactions, uh, extra interactions we don't need. Uh, it's also just a waste of resources. There are real public safety uh, issues um, uh, where an officer uh, might be required, but regular fare checks can be uh, best done by people who are trained to do that work. And uh, it's also about eyes and ears on the train. Um, or on on the buses, so the ambassador program I think is is crucial, and that would be funded uh, uh, through this legislation. Oh, I was going to ask about timelines. Like uh, the Senate is now doing their thing, but I have no idea when is that likely to happen. When should I put this episode out so that it's not late? Uh, when is the Senate going to act? So the latest I heard 
and I'm, I'm, this, is, this is how current this is happening, John. The Senate bill is making its last stop before the floor on Tuesday, this next Tuesday, April 25th, which means it could come to the Senate floor as soon as Wednesday or Thursday. Now, here's what I think is going to happen. In all likelihood, the Senate is just going to pass the smaller version of the bill. So we'll have a three-quarter cent strongly funded bill in the House, and we'll have a, you know, the half-size bill coming out of of the Senate. But that's not the end of the process, because then they'll go into conference committee. Those two uh, bills will be uh, will be reconciled in between the two of them, and that'll take I don't know a week, two, three weeks. There's not that much time left in the legislative session. There's like five weeks left, but that's an opportunity in those in those weeks, however many there are, for us to be making those calls, for us to be calling those legislators, urban legislators, suburban legislators, and saying, as you reconcile those two bills, reconcile the money in the direction of the House. Um, so this is all going to play out within, you know, between now and the end of session, which is May uh, 22nd. But it's frankly really good if people get calls early in that process, because again, it could be on the House floor as, as early as Wednesday or Thursday of next week. And the calls that arrive before then are perhaps the most impactful because you could be calling a senator now and saying, I know you're going to pass this bill, but I hope by the time you do final passage, I hope it looks like the House bill. I hope it fully funds transit around the whole region with frequency, whether you're in the urban core or in a third ring suburb. Okay, you heard Peter. Uh, tell your friends. Call call your legislature, leg legislators. Uh, write some emails. Pass some money for good bus service and hit our climate goals. Climate equity, public health. It's all served by by making this happen. Now's the time. We've wanted this for 15 years, and we can make it happen. Okay. Thank you, Peter Waginius, uh, who is the lobbyist for the Sierra Club. I want to call you uh, the bike lobbyist who's destroying our environment. Did you see that Carol Becker headline? Uh, <laughs> bike lobbyists are destroying the environment. I thought of you. That that you're my conception of a bike lobbyist. So, so I am. I am. I am all those kinds of lobbyists. My title is legislative and political director. But I'm telling you, I think if she wanted to, at this point. Carol could get a desk next to Randall O'Toole at the Cato Institute or wherever he is now. I mean, wow. Whew. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. You bet. I'm your host, John Edwards. This has been the Wedge Live Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is a real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.